lot of the patterning that we're aware of, those of us that think about this a lot, a lot of the patterning that we're aware of still feels like maybe it's important to keep around. Like the capacity to be vigilant and on the lookout for potential threat or danger. Like the question is like, well, why would you give that up? If that kept us alive before, don't we still need it? And if we give it up, does that mean we're deciding that all of the fear is gone? I'm Clarissa Marks, and you are listening to On Wandering. Thanks so much for joining us. I hope everyone had a good summer. I used the break to shake some things up and even made a major move with my family to Los Angeles. And with all that change, it feels right to say that the next episode will be the last episode of the podcast for now. Making the show has been an amazing chance to engage with Jewish curiosity and talk with some absolutely inspiring people. I'm not sure what the next iteration of this work will be, but I have a good feeling the journey isn't over. So stay tuned for the last episode and check the show notes for how to connect with me, learn about my work, and what's coming up next. On the show today, we're digging into a topic that has come up in many of the conversations on this podcast, intergenerational trauma. Folks have talked about intergenerational trauma as being the source of mental health issues, communication breakdowns, and broken family ties. To take a closer look at this, I spoke to Joe Kent Katz, a therapist, ritualist, and political educator. In 2020, Joe launched a website called Transcending Jewish Trauma to help Jews unpack and heal from inherited unconscious beliefs and behaviors associated with ancestral trauma. On the website is a map that explores the many manifestations of trauma experienced by Ashkenazi Jews living in the U.S. I started the conversation by asking her to help us understand what the term intergenerational trauma really means. What is your definition of intergenerational trauma? So intergenerational trauma, the way that I conceive of it, is trauma that happened on an individual level, on a family level, on a collective level, on a cultural level, that then got passed down through cellular memory, through direct witnessing, through direct teaching, or unconsciously to the generations that followed. And some of intergenerational trauma is what I like to call ancestrally proven best practices. And that is patterns, like ways of thinking, ways of believing, ways of acting that were passed down that helped us stay alive, that were necessary, that were required, considering the conditions that people were surviving. And some of those patterns are really hard to dislodge because of the fact that they saved us. And I think about this in particular with intergenerational trauma for Jews because a lot of the patterning that we're aware of, those of of us that think about this a lot, a lot of the patterning that we're aware of still feels like maybe it's important to keep around. Like the capacity to be vigilant and on the lookout for potential threat or danger. Like the question is like, well, why would you give that up? If that kept us alive before, don't we still need it? And if we give it up, does that mean we're deciding that all of the fear is gone? And those feel like very potent questions to me when we're thinking about like which direction we're moving as communities and as cultures. Because in some ways, 
you know, you can like pick and choose what you let go of and what you hold on to. But if we're trying to hold on to the wisdom and let go of the actual trauma, then we we need to be really precise of where the line is. And I think that that precision is something that a lot of us are working to discern. Because the idea of me carrying around a level of fear that in my body that comes from generations of being on the run, of hiding, of seeking safety in all sorts of, of very potent ways. That fear, as the fear itself that keeps my body running, is not the thing that's going to help me discern now where to put my attention, where to find allyship, how to like cultivate the sort of resilient communities and community connections that are actually going to keep us all protected, all peoples protected and safe now. However, the capacity to know that that's a skill and to be able to see that in other people and to be able to, to like foster the kind of quick action when I need it is powerful and is part of, of the resilience of our people. I'm saying that because sometimes when we think about the word trauma, it's something that we, we want to kind of heal and get over and fix and move out of our body. And I, I agree that trauma is something to be healed. And I also want to be recognizing that in, in all trauma, in all intergenerational trauma, there are these very powerful kernels of wisdom that we get to really define and cultivate and ground ourselves in, but not to be confused with the energy of the trauma itself. If you had an example of like a particular teaching or piece of wisdom from Jewish history or that you've seen in the Jewish community that sometimes shows up as a, an intergenerational trauma fear and sometimes shows up as wisdom we could learn from. Do you have an example of like what that difference would look like? Yeah. Okay. So let's take the example of, of perfectionism. This is an example that many of us white assimilated Ashkenazi Jews can relate to. And the energy of perfectionism, when we like just feel it on an energetic level, feels to me like a very quickly running circle like a kind of like a like a cog that's just like running and running and running and doesn't actually get to land itself it doesn't it doesn't get to kind of find a place to to rest and that to me is the is the vigilance is the fear is sometimes the terror that's running kind of behind the curtains that on the surface looks like me really wanting to get it right and me really wanting everybody around me to get it right. And then sometimes me thinking that other people don't know how to get it right, and I'm gonna override their right with my right. And there's so many interesting complexities about about this one. We know that so much of that sense of perfectionism on the surface in society in, in present time comes from white supremacy culture, comes from like a culture of deciding that there's one norm and creating a good and bad, what's that word when you have dichotomy dichotomy a good and bad dichotomy around it and that's not something that I want to aspire to that also might be something that could get me a job so that there's one tension there that feels more about the whiteness and how do I conform or assimilate to the whiteness but when we talk about the the deeper pieces the vigilance that has me running these patterns of perfection is something that in my body wants to be resolved like the pain that amounts to that kind of vigilance is something that's reaching for a resolution and that wants to be healed, that wants to be tended to, that wants to be released from my body. But sometimes I don't want to let it go because the way that it drives my sense of perfectionism actually works in this in, in today's society. I'm actually 
allowing myself to be run by this vigilance, be run by this like sense of uncalm. Because if I were to just release it, then would I actually like get the grant written? And would I actually show up to work on time? So, so it's complicated. My understanding though is that if we actually do the healing to relieve ourselves of the vigilance, of the terror that's running us almost entirely unconsciously, then where we get to land is the capacity to discern where it's important to get things just right and where it really doesn't matter. If we brought like a personal example, what I'm thinking about is like, okay, so I was brought up to think that perfection meant like got to get into a really good college and then Mm -hmm. you got to get a really good job and if you don't do that, your life will not be successful. You'll, you'll basically won't succeed. And I'm starting to realize comes from this idea of like, well, we have to be a successful group of people because we won't survive. Otherwise we won't have a social safety net. But if I stop to examine that perfectionism of that idea of like, what is the perfect college and a perfect job? I can stop and think about, okay, well, what, what would I like my life to look like? Where would I like to go to school? Where do I want to spend my time working? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, totally. And, and also getting to kind of widen my view to be like, well, what would it look like for me to consider myself as part of a wider network, a part of a wider community? And what is the need of the community now? And how can I fit Mm -hmm. my own, my own desires and my own gifts and my own essence into that wider picture? So it gives us mm-hmm. the chance to have like a, a wider kind of more illuminated sense of, of our direction that's not just run on that like very kind of fine-tuned individual like you get there or you don't make it mentality. Mm-hmm. There was a quote on your website that really stood out to me that I think speaks to the importance of this work and I was hoping you could read it for me. Okay. It was years before I would center anti-Semitism and internalize anti-Semitism in my trainings. I was held captive by the delusion that dismantling anti-Semitism wasn't an important direction for our movements. I had invested in the myth that if we white Ashkenazi Jews centered our own healing, that rather than increasing our vitality, flexibility, and capacity, we would be leeching a resource from the communities and issues that mattered. Releasing myself from this delusion profoundly shifted my understanding of liberation, helping me to recognize that the true, deep healing, when done with consciousness and intention, can serve as a catalyst for collective transformation. Thank you. I thought that was really powerful and really spoke to some of the conversations I've been having with other white Ashkenazi Jews about when do I spend time and energy dealing with what hurt I or my family have experienced? And when do I fight for others because I'm doing, I'm doing okay right now? Can you say a little bit more about where that quote came from? Definitely. I was just thinking about this the other day. When I decided to start talking about anti-Semitism and internalized anti-Semitism, I was teaching workshops at Urban Adama in Northern California in Berkeley. And my my role in that program was to talk about oppression and talk about liberation, and my focus had been on the dismantling of racism. That was like kind of the center point for me. And then 
all all other oppressions kind of stem from there, which they do all stem from there in, in lots of ways that we can think about them. But that was really my priority. And I guess one thing I'll say is that I noticed that when I did choose to start talking about anti-Semitism, and specifically to, to start talking about internalized anti-Semitism, that that was actually the moment when the white Jews, white Ashkenazi Jews, white assimilated Ashkenazi Jews in the group started transforming. And I felt like I could watch it in the room even, because that it felt almost like until we kind of identified and, and started tending to the healing that was necessary in our own bodies, our own physical bodies, that we couldn't actually open to feel and to like truly authentically attend to the violence that was happening to other bodies, in part the violence that we were perpetuating. I myself felt like there was a lot of good work that I was doing around education of addressing racism and sexism and ableism, etc. before I really started diving into my own pieces of internalized anti-Semitism that I carry. But there was something so, so powerfully changing about like, like the shape that I held my body in once I started addressing that. One of the things that I find interesting about your work is you connect intergenerational trauma to internalized oppression and internalized anti-Semitism. What do those what do those two terms mean? Maybe we should step back and say, what is internalized anti-Semitism and oppression? I think of internalized oppression as the way that we have taken in, taken on, absorbed all the messages in society about us, the bodies that we carry, the people that we are, the identities that we have, and live them, embody them as if they're true. So that means if I have learned from society, either through things being taught to me directly, from what I've witnessed, through direct impact, through violence, if I've learned as the identity of a cis woman that I'm not safe in a space where there's only cis men, and that I'm not safe in general, and therefore I need to be on guard all the time, and I believe that that's true, then I'm going to internalize this idea, not that I need to be you know, mindful and careful and making connections and speaking for myself, but I'm going to internalize kind of the shadow side of that, which is that I'm personally not able to take care of myself. I'm personally weak. I'm personally not capable of speaking up. And then I'm going to live that. So this is internalized oppression. And internalized anti-Semitism is thinking about that the messages that society holds about Jews in this country and in the countries where all of all the all the different ancestors whose lines whose lineages we carry come from what the messages were about Jews at different times and taking that on absorbing them making them our truth and deciding that those are kind of the beliefs that we live by so we start to think of ourselves the way that society tells us to think of ourselves and we start thinking of each other the way that society tells us to. So that means that we're running these these beliefs about oppression, not just at ourself, not just shaming and blaming ourself, but also shaming and blaming each other for displaying any evidence of these of these characteristics that society says are we have and are deemed negative. Do you have an example of what that looks like? Yeah. I have a map of them. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we should just chat okay. So you 
created a map that showcases how intergenerational trauma and internalized anti-Semitism shows up for white Ashkenazi Jews in the U.S. Can you describe the map and some of the patterns that it captures? Yeah. So first of all, I want to say that this map, a lot of the language in the map and a lot of the way that the map is organized comes from the wisdom and collective knowledge of Sherry Brown, who's a white Ashkenazi Jewish elder who's been working with, with Jews and with allies to Jews for several decades, thinking about all of the ways that oppression shows up for Jews and how we heal from it. So I want to just name her and lift up her work and also my dear friend Penny Rosenwasser who's an incredible activist and organizer and educator and also has done this healing work for a long time and has a very beautiful book about it and then Aurora Levins Morales, Yavila McCoy, Dr. Joy DeGruy, Dr. Barbara J. Love and Melanie K. Kanchowitz. May her name be of a blessing. These are teachers of mine teachers of ours that I feel very, very grateful to kind of lean back into the wisdom of and the guidance of in perceiving all of this, all of these pieces, all of these learnings and supporting me and in, in moving through to, to do the healing work. Okay, so the map itself is, it is, it's a mind map and it kind of goes through several different categories that are pretty arbitrary, being that all of these, it's a map, everything is webbed, everything is connected. But it's seven different categories that are thinking about the themes of the way that anti-Semitism has been embodied, has been internalized for white Ashkenazi Jews in the US. And I have been recently very encouraged by a new collective of post-Soviet white Ashkenazi Jews, queers, who are coming together and doing a lot of very incredible work together, who've helped me understand that so many of these patterns on this map is actually about the internalized anti-Semitism that came from Eastern Europe, where a lot of us come from, overlaid very specifically with the experience of assimilation in the U.S. And that it's hard when you have both of those layers to discern what comes from where, but I'm, I've been encouraged to really kind of own the assimilation part, which really means owning the whiteness part of a lot of these patterns. Okay, so that being said, there's seven different aspects, seven different themes, and they all kind of center in the center of the map. And the center of the map really talks about like where these patterns come from, where, what, what do they look like when they're kind of in their source source state. And those are terror and sense of otherness. And terror is thought of as a f the fear of unpredicted rise and fall, of attempted annihilation and expulsion. And this is derived from periods of mass anti-Jewish violence that were repeated um, throughout Christian Europe, transmitted as intergenerational trauma, and then triggered as both overt and covert anti-Jewish rhetoric and present-day violence here in the U.S. So that is paired with a sense of otherness which to me is a lot about like the messages that we got about ourselves ancestrally as Jews living in a society that was so characterized by anti-Semitism at the time, many times, many times over. So a sense of otherness meaning not belonging, not being inherently desired or connected with no right to exist. So the, so the way that Sherry Brown talks about this is that those two layers of trauma that we carry in our bodies, that our ancestors carried in our bodies, that we they experience directly. Those are carried and kind of come out. It's almost like energy kind of coming out of the pores of our body as all these different ways of thinking and believing and acting that I'm naming and several of us are naming as sense of powerlessness, drive for security, 
self-hatred, and drive for acceptance by way of perfection, desire to control, sense of not belonging, and the denial of the existence of anti-Semitism itself. And under each of, or in these, each of these categories are many little different threads that are kind of touching on the more nuanced kind of action points. Like, how do you, how do you know how can you see what what does this actually look like? So it set, it it lists like all, a bunch of different specific thoughts or ways of being, like feeling like a victim, personally or collectively, or the desire for upward mobility, or surrounding oneself with only Jews, or not being around any Jews at all as a way to stay safe, urgency, being overly critical of others and of yourself. All of these like you could see them as just kind of like randomly floating little characteristics that a lot of us have. But what would happen if we started recognizing that that was actually kind of an outward expression of these um, places where my body is carrying the terror of my people? And one reason why I think it's powerful to, to make those connections is because it supports us to grow our compassion for where these patterns come from. Much of the patterns of being Jewish immigrants, for in this case for my grandparents and great-grandparents, amongst a rising culture of whiteness was to blame and shame ourselves and our people for all the ways that we didn't or don't fit into the model of whiteness. So our people learned to not speak Yiddish, learned to not speak with an impassioned tone, learned to not eat so much garlic so they didn't smell like our people smell. There's like an extensive list of all the ways that like our, our people or for some of us ourselves contorted, physically contorted our bodies, literally contorted our bodies through through surgery or just shaped ourselves so that we would talk and act and think in a way that would fit so that maybe perhaps we would have a good chunk of the promise that this idea of whiteness prom- like offered. You just mentioned surgeries and a light bulb went off of like all of the nose plastic surgeries that are kind of made fun of in Jewish in white Ashkenazi Jewish culture. Like some young women, like when they become teenagers, are gifted with a plastic yeah. surgery to make your nose look more anglicized. And I, I mean, I always thought of that as like, oh, that's kind of a weird thing. But connecting that to internalized anti-Semitism is very powerful. Like, that's not such a fun gift for your daughter anymore if what you're telling her is that you have to change your body to survive in society. Yeah, and that your peoplehood is ugly and wrong mm-hmm. and bad and not desirable and not lovable and not attractive. Those are all the messages that we get from whiteness. Yeah. It's interesting because I feel like in some ways the the attempt to like, here, we'll give you plastic surgery and then you'll feel good about yourself in, in some ways, I feel like that's like, a, let's just leap over all the, the shame and blame of being, you know, being of Ashkenazi culture in a, in a white Christian society. I'd really much rather us just address the shame and blame directly rather than have everybody go and, you know, walk into the doctor's office. But it does, it does, I, I do think it is important to remember that, that like assimilating into white Christian society was really about making our Jewishness go away. And the more we did that, it seemed the more safe we were and our people were. And that's, I say it seemed because that's just a, it's like a conceptual idea. It's a, it's a promise that whiteness offered. And that when we did that, as we assimilated, as we tried to make the Jewishness of us go away, we also absorbed 
all of the rest of the mentality of white supremacy, which is, includes racism, includes white superiority. And that included assuming a sense of superiority over all different marginalized groups, people of color, Jews of color, anyone who was deemed threatening or disposable by the white constructs of the country, and also included learning to judge and despise and demean the unassimilated Jews around us and the unassimilated Jew within us. The very culture that our people were contorting themselves to fit into and that we continue to shape ourselves right now to fit into for protection or for the, the idea of perfection is the same culture that had that, that like deems us also unworthy. And I like to think about that because I, I think that our internalized anti-Semitism and racism for assimilated white Ashkenazi Jews is very closely linked. What does it look like to, com to cultivate a compassion for ourselves in that Jewish identity as a way of helping ourselves to be more able, more gentle with ourselves when we're being called out or called in for perpetuating all these other patterns of white supremacy, for being racist? I think there's something about taking the time to recognize all of these patterns, all the ways that these, the oppression rules us, and to feel the grief and the rage related to the impacts of white supremacy on our own bodies, on our ancestors' bodies, and our families, that help us understand the way that all forms of oppression are connected and kind of help us like discern our own sense of self and our own essence from whiteness that allows us to show up more grounded as a white ally in this work. How do you address healing intergenerational trauma in your work and what advice do you have for Jews who feel impacted by it? Yeah, this is a great question. I have lots and lots of things to say about it, so I'm glad you're asking. The thing I was just talking about, about cultivating compassion around these patterns, I think is really important for the reasons why I named. So that's one thing. Dr. Barbara J. Love, who's a beloved teacher, mentor of mine, she talks about the practice of noticing and naming and interrupting uh, oppression. And the practice of noticing, naming, and interrupting the inherited oppression, the inherited trauma patterns that we carry. And we do this, we like practice this so that we're, that we find more ease in doing it. Because there's something very powerful about drawing those lines between what we're feeling and thinking and doing and believing and the oppression and trauma that we carry. And the reason why I think this is important is because it allows me, for myself, it allows me to catch myself, let's say when I'm like blaming myself for not being good enough in some sort of way that I can be like, oh, wait a minute, this is about white supremacy. This is not about me. I'm doing awesome right now. This is great. Whatever, whatever I'm doing right now, whatever I'm literally saying in this moment is great. If it could be more perfect, if I think it should be more perfect, that's me letting white supremacy run me. And that's also me letting my own internalized anti-Semitism run the show. So the more I can practice catching it with more ease, kind of relieves me of living underneath it and lets me kind of have more agency and, and yeah, power to be in more alignment in myself and in connection with others. So another thing I'll say is I want to talk about a little bit about the, the potency of feeling what's beneath the patterns. So let's take, for instance, the, the, the pattern of moving really quickly, which is a very well-worn pattern in my family literally like almost running from room to room, talking fast, moving fast. Even when I'm slow, I'm thinking fast. And this is a, something that maybe a lot of people could, could, you know, relate to. 
but there's something that I feel is very connected to internalized anti-Semitism for me about these, just because I know the history of my family having to move and being ready to move and being ready to move very fast. And that to me is one of those ancestrally proven best practices that for me to stay on the move now, to stay ready to move now, like you want my room packed up, I'll do it in five minutes, I'm ready. I'm literally always ready to do that. That is, there's something there that's not just about my eagerness to pack boxes, like what's going on there, there's something deeper. So now what happens if in that fast moving times, like what, what happens if I stop? Like what feelings come up if I actually pause? and actually sh- slow myself down, especially in the presence of someone who cares about me and loves me, holding me, so I feel connected, so I feel safe. What I find personally that, that there's often fear and grief just beneath the surface, and oftentimes that fear or grief could be something I feel in my own life that I'm kind of trying to stay ahead of, to not feel, because it's hard. But when I really slow down, that fear or grief almost always connects me back to some fear or grief that my ancestors held in their bodies that I inherited. And allowing myself to feel it is a big part of allowing my body to release it through crying or through prayer or through body work or through energy work, through therapy, however I do that, but actually letting it, kind of like letting that, that, the energy of those traumas drain out of my body so that I'm not having to move so fast to stay ahead of it, and I can actually land myself more. And this also has me thinking about cultivating a felt understanding of the difference between instinct and intuition. Instinct being connected to that fast moving, but instincts like a way of responding when our body is threatened. So our physical reflexes like moving your hand away from a hot stove. But also in terms of instincts in trauma therapy, the analogy most very often talked about is you're walking through a jungle and you come upon a tiger. And if it's you coming upon a tiger, you're probably not going to stop and think, let's say, about the shoes that you're wearing. And if they're going to get muddy, if you run through the jungle to get away from the tiger, you're not going to be thinking about that in part because you're not going to be thinking at all. Literally the part of our brain that thinks is turned off in a moment of that kind of threat. And the part that takes care of us, the instincts, the survival part is turning on and we're just gonna find safety. So there's that piece of instinct, and then there's also the instinct that's not just our survival reflexes, but also the impulses that we inherit. And often the way that we perceive threat or respond to threat now mirrors the way that our parents or our grandparents or our ancestors perceived threat and responded to threat in the past. So this includes like our choices to defend ourselves with words or physically, to appease, to flee, to leave. And it's essential to our actual survival that we have these instinctual responses. And these physical responses keep us alive and protected currently. But because these instincts, the instincts are not about thinking, they're about reacting, when we respond by instinct, we often miss the mark in our attempts to align our actions with our more deeply held intentions and beliefs. So I said that I wanted to talk about the difference between instinct and intuition. For intuition, that's like our deep intelligence. That's like the internal voice of wisdom that guides us and sometimes comes through our body, sometimes comes to us in dreams, sometimes comes with a, like an aha moment of awareness, suddenly realizing something you've partially known the whole time. And I believe that following your intuition means listening for the voice 
that aligned voice and then making a clear, grounded choice from that place. Intuition can be quick, it can be protective, but it's not in a hurry. And I'm saying that because if I can, back to the other example, like if I can feel that my body's in a hurry, that's not me paying attention to my intuition. That's me running on some sort of physical or inherited instinct. Okay, so for instance, as a white person committed to dismantling racism, I might have learned about or witnessed the brutal violence that the police inflicts on communities of color. And in a moment that I perceive to be a crisis in my own life out in the world, when I feel like my body or my family might be in danger, even if there are folks of color involved in the situation who might be in more danger if the police show up, I might call the police. Why? Because as a white person, I've been taught over and over and over and over and over again that the police are here to help me and to keep me safe. And when I can tell that my body's activated because I've been practicing noticing that it's activated, I've been practicing noticing that I'm running on those instincts, then I know that whatever choices I'm making in the moment are going to be instinctual, where I'm acting on my personal need for safety rather than a wider collective understanding um, of the need for safety. So literally, just being able to notice when you have thoughts that are not coming from you, but they're coming from internalized anti-Semitism or intergenerational trauma, you might be saving somebody's life. Because if you panic and as a white person call police in a situation where there's also a person of color around or a black person around, you're putting that black person in danger because because of the prejudice within the police force against people of color. So you you might be doing harm by lis- by making a split decision to listen to your instinct for personal survival rather than being able to slow down and think about what you have as a modern person has learned about how our society works and how racism in our society works. Exactly. Exactly. So I'm reaching for safety in an instinctual way. And the impact of that is that I'm perpetuating in white supremacy and racism. Mm-hmm. It's so funny to think of how, like, just the idea of noticing and that, like, mindfulness about how is this showing up for you personally feels like such a little action. It's, it feels, it's like such a little thing that you just do throughout the day when you notice you're stressed and certain things are coming up for you or you're clenching your jaw a little too much. But yeah, like uh, the, those little moments make up a, a lifetime and directing all of your actions. Totally. So it can be a really exactly. big deal. Exactly, exactly. And there's something also so powerful about getting familiar with the place of being calm which mm-hmm. I just feel like that is, not, that is not the practice I was raised with at all. But there's something really powerful about cultivating it because if we are cultivating it and getting as familiar with like a room that's called calm as we are that's a room that's called vigilant, that means that we can actually come home to calm. It's not a stretch for us. It's a place that we can live. And the more and more we live there, the more exactly like what you're saying, we can make choices that allow ourselves to align with what we what we really want for the world. Yeah. Oh, that's really powerful. Is there anything else that you'd like to share that I haven't asked about? I guess I'll just say now that I I think that over like the past decade, I've noticed a really big change in the role that healing seems to play 
in a lot of spaces, including political movement spaces. And I think, or I know that a lot of people have worked really hard to bring healing into the center of, of this work and kind of bring it from like a sexist placement of it like being on the side, marginalized, something you do later, something you do when you go home or something you don't do at all, or if you're doing it, you should be ashamed of it. And really placing even the ideas of healing as a central point in us, people being connected, people working for liberation. And I feel very grateful for that. I feel like I've been kind of part of that wave of bringing it in. And it's been really powerful for me personally to get to kind of have the significance of that of that affirmed. Because I've, in almost all of the activism I've been in, engaged with, my, my place has always been about the emotions and about the energy and about the connection and about the healing. And for a long time, I felt like that was, it really deserved to be on the side. And I do feel like that was partly internalized sexism because whose work was it to, to tend to that healing historically in so many different communities, like women and gender nonconforming folks have so often been in the center of that or centered that. But I, I do want to say that like, healing is not something that you need to go away and do separate from everybody else and separate from everything else. I think it's something that can be cultivated collectively, done together, done in connection, and specifically done with the intention of then bringing a fuller aspect of yourself back into whatever work you're doing, whatever community you're connecting with. I wish, I wish to like, to like release us from all of the ways that we've decided that that healing is not essential to, to our lives and instead not replace other work with the healing. It's not like I'm saying get off the streets and go home and, and cry. That's not what I mean. I mean like really understanding that it's all woven together and that we can, when we recognize ourselves as being in healing processes as we're organizing and as we're teaching and as we're, you know, leading communities, I think the more powerful we are in that work. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for talking with me. This was such a lovely conversation. So thank you so much. Thanks so much, Clarissa. Thanks so much for listening. This episode was produced by me, Clarissa Marks, with music by Gilly Cuddy. Next month will be our last episode before going on hiatus, and it's a good one. So make sure you're subscribed to get it in your feed as soon as it's released. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Clarissa R. Marks. And do check the show notes for more information about what's coming up next. Take care and see you next time.